On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we have Lyle Danley, who has done a little bit of everything in his career, but more so recently has really dove into data science and the statistics and utilized that working in baseball, but now working within the military. And so I follow a lot of what Lyle has posted on social media. Data science is something that's super interesting to me, although slightly overwhelming. So this was as much for me to get an idea of even where to start uh, with some of this stuff. And Lyle did a really good job kind of breaking it down and what the importance is and how to utilize it within the athletic training profession. So if data is something you're into, this is a great way to really get an idea of where you could potentially take it beyond just collecting it. Uh, as always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. We can't thank them enough for helping us out and the profession as a whole. Uh, partnering with them on a few different initiatives are Throw a Lifeline, where they help supply the kit for some basic first aid emergency response stuff that we would get out to ATs when we can get it funded. And also now through Clinically Presco, the Mueller Recovery Tub. We've gotten two of those out uh, thanks to a couple different donations and also just people listening and just by listening to this and dealing with the ad that's coming up it helps contribute all the funds we get from that we go directly into supplying these tubs and other initiatives so we thank you for that but without further ado please enjoy this episode episode of athletic training chat we are on with lyle danley who is an athletic trainer but uh the reason we've started uh connecting more and uh, wanted to have this uh conversation is he has done a lot uh with data science data analytics and we'll get into talking that and i've started to have a huge fascination with it and um honestly wish i could nerd out on it more and want to get there but uh we've had a previous conversation with greg winkleman who had done a uh data science boot camp and uh provided some insight but uh lyle from what i've seen just that he's posted and also in some of the roles that he's had has kind of gone to uh another level with that so we wanted to talk about all of those things and just what that looks like um but before we jump into all of that wanted to turn it over to you, Lyle, to fill in uh, as kind of your background, and then if you could, kind of what took you down this route of data analytics, data science? Sure. Um, so my current role, I am a da data scientist on the um, preservation of the force and family program. That's a, it's a program that provides um, kind of a holistic set of services um, for uh, special operators in the military. It's driven at U.S. Special Operations Command, and so it's it's actually administered through um, every major branch of, spe of special operations in the military. So MARSOC, USASOC, which is the Army, uh, NSW, which is Navy Special Warfare, and, um, and um, JSOC, which is like Joint Special Operations Command. And then I, I work at, at Air Force Special Operations Command at AFSOC. And so um, I am 
the data scientists responsible within the physical domain. And what that means is the physical domain of POTIF is, um, it consists of athletic trainers, strength conditioning coaches, uh, registered dietitians, physical therapists. And so I'm responsible for um, kind of aggregating and representing um, all of the data that comes from those labor categories. And so I, I push that stuff up to SOCOM and to COMAFSOC, which the commander of Air Force Special Operations. And then I also kind of in my, in my role, kind of looking down and within, um, down and within the component, I um, try to answer ad hoc questions or provide context or um, provide tools to make life easier for um, athletic trainers and, and strength coaches and, you know, all the people that, that use these, um, that, that have to record this data and put in these things so that we can, you know, ultimately represent ourselves well to, um, you know, like Congress and, and the folks sure. who, who pay the bills. Um, so that, that's what I do now. Um, I've been an athletic trainer for uh, almost 10 years. Um, I uh, did both my undergrad and grad school in Texas. Um, and my undergrad was at Texas Tech. My, uh, my master's degree in athletic training came from Texas A&M. Um, and just like a, 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 a quick background um, as far as places, I've, I've worked in professional baseball as an athletic trainer, um, worked in division one athletics as an athletic trainer. And then um, I took a role in the military and um, started out just like straight AT stuff. And um, while, you know, going from the traditional setting to the military setting, one of the big things is, is that um, on contract-based jobs and really on, on, on everything that works in the government, everything is based off of working 40 hour work weeks. And yeah. like, you can flex that. And, and there's, there's some like leeway with that, but especially with contracting, like the contractor, they get to bill for those 40 hours and they don't really get to bill for anything in, ex in excess of that. And so going from being in traditional athletics to a 40 hour a week job, um, I got really bored. And so part of my being bored was I, I got a second master's in data analytics, um, which I got that through the business school at Texas A&M. And um, with that, as I, as I was getting that degree and I was working at Air Force Basic Military Training, we had at BMT in the Viper program scaled from eight athletic trainers to 30. Wow. And um, our footprint really, really got big, um, you know, comparatively, right? And um, as a result of that, the, the amount of patients that we were seeing obviously was scaling up. And myself and another athletic trainer, um, we, we, we're really dissatisfied with the mechanism by which we were keeping track of everything. And so between the two of us, we developed and then kind of quality controlled um, an outcomes tracker that we then uh, educated on and then implemented among the 14 clinics that we, that we had. Um, and that involved a lot of coming up with common definitions of things and then making sure those common definitions of things were, um, were kind of briefed and educated to the people who are going to be filling out these, these, these forms. Sure. So that, um, you know, the, 
the idea of the definition of like what makes a bone stress injury, which is like the big bugaboo in um, in the military training environment. Um, the the definition of what we're thinking in terms of what does advanced imaging entail? Because really the standard of care in um, at BMT was if anybody has a suspected BSI, we're we're automatically getting an x-ray. So that's not advanced imaging. That's standard of care. That's what's written out. That's what everybody does. Everybody gets gotcha. labs. Everybody gets gets an x-ray. And so being able to tell them, like, we want you to check the box for advanced imaging only if they get an MRI and an ultrasound or a CT or, you know, those things. Sure. Um, so, like, being able to get that stuff briefed out so that we had eight different people who had their own set of expertise, their own backgrounds, their own kind of way of interpreting the the body of knowledge so that like it, it's a really fun but fine line of like I understand that you may think that this is different because of what you have experienced and what your you know what your um, professional background is but for the purpose of being able to like keep apples in boxes with apples and put oranges in boxes with oranges I really need you to um, put yourself in the mindset of this is how we're defining it and define it that way for me, please. And that's uh, usually if, as long as you can help people understand and help them care about stuff, they do they do a really, really good job. Like it, at BMT, they did and continue to do a really, really good job with that. Um, it's just finding a way to bridge the gap between like what I need this stuff for from the standpoint of, of like being able to report things in a bigger picture and, and what people are doing on an individual day-to-day -day basis. And that's like, that's a big part of my job now, um, except with BMT, it was, um, you know, uh, 30 athletic trainers at 14 clinics serving um, roughly a thousand people a month, scale that times, um, you know, to scale that to, uh, you know, it's what, what it was, was you have between 35,000 and 40 people coming through BMT every year, and about 20% of them receive musculoskeletal care. So whatever sure. that number is, I, sorry, I can't do Aggie math. 20% of 40, that's like, you know, between eight and 10,000, right? Sure, um, yeah, yeah. People a year. Um, and so scaling from that to where now we serve, AFSOC has um, 18,000 service members assigned, and I've got about 300 providers spread out between all of the components in eight different wings, um, four of which are local, two of which are overseas, one's in Clovis, New Mexico. And then um, and then we have these geographically separated units that are kind of like our secret squirrels that are um, in different places all over the country. So it's it's a little bit more of, it's a little bit more squirrel chasing and it's a lot more kind of um, getting people on the same page. And like, it's funny because like I said, I got into the data science stuff, um, partly because I like the the thing of um, being able to kind of get everybody on the same page and uh -huh. taking problems that people have and kind of picking them apart and finding out what we can do to solve things and and that sort of thing. And it really, really goes against kind of what the perception is of people who do that sort of thing. Like sure. the old joke is, it's like the difference between an introverted data scientist and an extroverted data scientist is, the extroverted ones, well, they usually look at your shoes whenever they're talking to you, and the introverted ones look at their own, um, which is like the opposite of me. Anybody who's ever met me knows that I'm like a super social guy, right? Um, so that's that's been kind of fun to to break that mold a little bit and be somebody who's 
a little bit more um like my my i i end up spending a lot of time by myself nerding at the end of the week because at the beginning of the week i'm constantly trying to like just talk to people and figure out and get sure. context and 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 you know i have questions and inevitably i go to the people who have the answers and say like hey you know please help me with this because i don't understand and um you know just try to put myself in the shoes of like listen i'm the idiot in the room in a lot of cases because i don't have to like i don't get to do what you do every day so help me understand what you're doing so that i can make sure that i'm putting that in the context as i'm representing these things to the people who make big decisions so anyway that was a long answer with a little bit of a meandering but um you're all good I, yeah i've 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 worked in the uh you know pro baseball division one athletics military i feel like for the first eight years of my career i was always doing some form of outreach contracting prn because um athletic trainers don't make enough money to support themselves otherwise and um and so i've done that uh after I, like right as I was finishing my second master's, I left Air Force BMT and spent a season doing um, sports science with the, uh, with the big league club in the front office at the New York Mets. Um, and then shortly after that season was over, I spent um, a little bit of time, stayed in New York for about six months and worked um, as a physician extender at Columbia University with a, um, with a shoulder and elbow surgeon, which was so much fun and i really really liked like if i'm ever going to work as an at again it's going to be in that setting because sure. i like i like that brand of patient care and i like being able to sit with really smart people and learn from them and i also like being on like the the like the healthcare industry side of things that really really helped me as i came into this role because i can have conversations with people where they're asking how we can represent things with metrics i'm like well we already have something built in to the healthcare system as to how we can represent value. Um, it's called a value unit. And like RVUs are things that everybody, like that's how all hospitals do all of their things, right? Like that's right. how they tell whether someone is working or not, basically. Um, and so that was really cool to be able to have that to be like, they're like, well, we don't really know how to do this. I'm like, well, you don't have to for this particular thing, it's already being done. And, and we can just iterate off of that. So, um, very very grateful for all the places that i've worked and kind of gotten a little piece from everywhere and the good the bad and the ugly and it allows me to as i walk into to, to as i've walked into this job i feel really fortunate that i can kind of choose from those experiences and be able to like have a perspective that i feel very lucky to have the perspective that i have because i've gotten to do a lot of different things with a lot of really really great people definitely uh it kind of ties into one of the questions, but also just to understand a little bit more of what you're currently doing. So I'm going to kind of blend them all together. But, you know, you mentioned you're, it sounds like you're kind of in the middle between the higher up reports and, you know, gathering all the data uh, from mm -hmm. all the ATs and strength coaches and physical therapists. What or how or some combination of them is determined on what you're looking at in terms of data coming in, you know, is it just, you know, the strength coaches all kind of agree, like, Hey, these are the testing things we're going to look at. Here's how often we're going to do it. You know, whether that be, you know, yeah. GPS data from training or force plate data or just straight strength and, you know, other testing data from, you know, a physical side, you know, versus athletic trainers, 
um, coming in, whether it's, you know, kind of return data, like you said, outcome data, how does that all kind of come in? Was that all predetermined before you got there? Has there been a lot of conversations? And all this ties into one of the things that we talked about when we were setting this up, however long ago that was, is just how do you approach these questions and figure out what actually is worth looking at or, you know, yeah. You know, data is great, but if you don't know what you're going to do with it, as you well know, or, you know, just collecting data Context, doesn't mean right? much if you, if you don't yeah. do anything with it. Um, if it you don't have anything there. that, right. yeah, if you don't have a, a reference point, if you don't have anything to, um, to like compare it with, or you don't have context through which to represent it, like it's, it's meaningless. Yeah, no. I right. Um, so. Sorry, that was a long well, question. However you want to no. break that down. Yeah. Well, and so. um I think this that part is like it's a valuable question to ask, but I think we also spend a little bit of time making it harder harder than it needs to be because we keep trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Um, I'll just like say my experiences in traditional athletics um, because and, and and I think you're gonna get a different answer if you ask people who are from different uh, parts of the world, honestly, because American athletics, uh, there is, um, it's a very decentralized structure, right? Okay. So like, unless you're like the XFL or, um, you know, the AAF is what it used to be, or like one of those, um, these professional organizations that it's like one organization and everybody is hired within that organization and it's kind of very very top-down controlled which the sure. only ones that I can think of are the XFL and formerly the, the AAF and I think U.S. lacrosse is kind of that way but I'm not super or like professional lacrosse is, that yeah, might sure. be spun up that way but they're very different from how we how we understand like the NHL the NFL the MLB and the NBA are there's a certain amount of crosstalk and because of cross uh, because of collective bargaining agreements, there's certain standards to which organizations have to be held for right. certain things. However, the level of collaboration and the level of like that infrastructure is very, very decentralized. So like my sample is only based off of what I've done in the history of my organization. Sure. And that's in college athletics as well. Like we do have some shared mechanisms, right? Like, you know, the PAC 12 had the CIRMAP study where they had to put everything into a central EMR. Um, you have these opportunities for voluntarily putting things into central EMRs and central clearinghouses. Yeah. Um, like what the the folks at, um, at AT still do with the, I don't remember the name of it, but they have like a central mechanism for putting everything in that um, the, uh, the, um, Oh, I can't remember his name now. Kenny Lamb, that Dr. Kenny Lamb kind of heads up like the it's like the um, it's it it's basically a, a giant voluntary EMR where with the purpose of collecting things for for sure. research, it's like an outcomes based network. Um, but for the most part, like we're we're not incentivized to do that in the U.S. Um, unless like we do that voluntarily. Um, or we're coerced to the way that, you know, some of these organizations like they, you know, you, in pro baseball, you have to use a certain EMR and that EMR allows you to do kind of data pools for yourself. But in terms of doing like 
a larger study and like a larger validation that isn't you mean you got to go through an IRB process and like it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty big lift and it's all controlled by the organizations whereas in like in Australia they have a like a central sure. sports like national sports organization yep. in China they have a national sports organization in in like you know in Europe a lot of the European countries have those set up that way where because everything runs through one centralized organization, there's a lot more kind of vertical integration of that stuff. So um, I say all of that to say that people at the university level and people probably in the professional realm, excuse me, they, we, we're all trying to solve the same problem, right? We're all trying to win games and we're all trying to keep people healthy. Um, but then how we define what it means to do that really can take a lot of different turns. And the other thing that we're fighting is we're also fighting um, leadership structures that because they're so coaching driven and because they're so like coaching culture driven that if you have a head coach that comes into a new, to a, like to a new situation at a big school, they can take some, like you can have been, working on something for five years and have these priorities with what you're collecting stuff on and really trying to move the needle. And you can have somebody come in and they can say basically, well, that's not important to me. So I need you to focus on the things that are important to me. And so being able to balance that and to be able to have that organizational support to be able to kind of weather that um, and still provide a product that's gonna be helpful to a new person who has new priorities but also maintain that same infrastructure, that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And there's a few organizations that I've like been, I, I only know because I have friends who work there or that I have worked there, but I think they do a really good job of that. But I think overall, a lot of that gets lost whenever you iterate between front office staffs or whenever you iterate between coaching staffs. So like how, how we do that, I think we, we, owe it to ourselves to be very collaborative and to talk to each other about that and not to make everything like a super secret squirrel thing. Um, but that's really, really hard in, in like the competitive environment that we live in. Yeah. Right. So that's like, it's a whole thing. Um, that's me riffing on stuff that is not necessarily in my world right now. Um, I have it pretty easy because I'm told what to do. Um, there's a there's a, a directive that comes out of SOCOM that says these are the things that we measure. Okay. Um, we get to have some latitude because like my life at AFSOC is very different from someone else's life at MARSOC or at NSW or, you know, each of the different components. So there's a little bit more latitude in how we're um, kind of a, how we're being told to, you know, make that happen. Um, but in terms of what we're measuring, a uh, big one is utilization. So utilization means how many people are coming, how much are we doing? So um, what's our, what, what are our numbers in terms of the number of events that we're doing? So how many group training sessions? Um, how many appointments do we have? Uh, how many briefs are we giving? Like those sorts of things. And then tied to that is within those events that we're doing, just how many people are coming? So, yep. you know. I, that in itself um, is not a very hard thing to capture um, like in theory, but 
in terms of how it's implemented, that's where you start getting into challenges because we're so decentralized and we've got so many, you know, we've got nine different wings all across the world and everybody has a different set of access to things. And everybody's also dealing with a different, um, like every, every squadron or unit that they're in, um, they're going to have different kind of quirks and eccentricities about how people are showing up. So like, and, and whenever you're dealing with things on the order of like eight sessions a day over 12 hours, and each of those sessions have 40 people showing up, like keeping track of that um, is, is a challenge if you're trying to do that by pencil and paper and then put it into a central system, which is what we're basically asking our folks to do. And we have a lot of people who do a, a few different things to try to capture that, whether that be they figured out how to scan um, scan their ID cards and put that in with a timestamp, or they, they'll have service members scan with a QR code and plug in their information. And that goes into like a Google sheet or a, or a, or an Excel sheet with a timestamp, or sometimes it's, if it's a smaller group, it's by pencil and paper, but everything from there gets put into a centralized system. And then from that centralized system, that's where I come and I okay. pull what I pull and I separate it by however we want to separate it whether it's keyed by the service member and where their affiliations are or keyed by the provider and where they are. Um, that's, I spend a lot of time on that. Um, and I spend a lot of time on it because it happens to the tune of like 40,000 people a quarter, you know, coming through and having these, you know, and, and, and utilizing our services yep. just within strength and conditioning. Um, I, I honestly can't speak as much to our, our full numbers within um, the sports medicine and the performance nutrition. And part of the reason is because theirs are actually a lot simpler because most of their stuff is one-on-one -on -one appointments. Right, um, right. And, you know, it's just easier to keep track of. So utilization is a big one. Um, physical performance. So the um, SOCOM has directed that we have a, 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 a physical performance assessment. And that really does a good job of being able to kind of see how utilization drives uh, see how utilization drives where people are like normality wise, but then also see how utilization, like how much somebody comes, how does that drive how well they do on the test or how well they improve on the test. Yep. Um, and every uh, command is given the latitude to develop a different physical performance test that depend or that is really kind of Set to what the demands of the career that uh, or the people that they're doing that, that are doing the things right so um, we have three physical performance assessments because AFSOC is unique among the rest of SOCOM with POTIF where we serve not only the operators but also the pilots and the um, and the like the support staff so maintainers and, sure. and all of that and so we have one test for the operators that is, you know, obviously a lot more stringent because they are a lot more like their jobs are very physically demanding one for the pilots because they have a different set of demands and then one for the support staff um, because because they have a different set of demands. And so those are already put together and they involve um, some things that are like power based, some things that are strength based and then some things that we measure on force plates. Um, I won't get into it because it's three different tests and they're each 90 minutes and there's three of them. Fair but enough. that's that that's what we measure. Um, and then we also have a holistic questionnaire that measures just like where someone's self-perception is of 
how confident do you feel with um, some of these things that we're talking about, whether it be um, how confident do you feel in making good choices with nutrition? How confident do you feel that your training prepares you for what your mission set is? Um, and then that's also paired with like uh, with an insomnia, insomnia severity index and um, oh, a couple of other things. Um, and those are all based off of um, validated measures that we've put into one measure that we call, it was first done by the seventh group, um, which is in um, USASOC, seventh group special forces, but now it's done by us too. Um, it's called the TPIQ, the Tactical Performance Index Questionnaire. So that's um, kind of another uh, qualitative way that we look at those things. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's what we use. Um, whenever you talk about what you are like once you decide what you're measuring right like i i my job is data scientist right and i'm i i feel like what so much of what i do is like trying to make sure that whenever we are doing anything where we're representing information or helping people make decisions we do it with with us with a certain amount of scientific rigor so at the end of the day, everything that I do falls around the scientific method um, in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So um, define the problem, research the problem, implement an intervention, report the intervention, check our work, try again. Um, and so with, with, with our um, kind of implementation of a lot of these things, for me, it's... Um, the like the very first rule of anything dealing with analysis of data is garbage in garbage out so what can i do to um what can i do to put checks on um how we're collecting things and how we're inputting things into a centralized system so that whenever it's getting pulled out i don't have to make assumptions i don't have to impute missing entries i don't have to account for you know differences in the way people understand how stuff gets put in. So collection of data and being on the same page with collection of data, or, you know, we don't have to say data, just collection in general, like that, it, there needs to be standards with that. And so that's actually like the first thing that I'm trying to get implemented kind of AFSOC wide is iterating on that so that everybody's on the same page with it. Um, and then like, once we have that, then um, determining how we're going to do some of these analyses and like how we're going to use the information that we have to try to represent some form of an answer. So what do you want? Do you want this in terms of, you know, dollar amounts? Do you mm -hmm. want this in terms of how it affects dollar amounts? Do you want this in terms of like how improvements are being made on a test? Like what, 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 what do you want? And so that's where like, really understanding the intent of stakeholders is important because like if if i'm talking to a strength coach about utilization really what we're talking about is how they're reaching the 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 most amount of people possible and whether the things that they're providing are moving the needle in terms of how someone's performing or how someone is doing in terms of like their injuries or or um or their readiness or their ability to access care. Like that's what we care about with them. But if I'm talking about that with the commander of AFSOC, who he's the one who decides how the money is spent and he's the one decide who decides what is important in terms of getting the pieces of the pie, 
I'm going to talk about utilization in a very different way because we're going to care about like how much money are we spending and how is that defining or, or how is that being spent and is, is there, are we getting a good return on investment? Um, it's the same thing as if I'm answering questions to, to the folks from SOCOM um, who ultimately have to answer to the GAO and Congress of, you know, are you spending the people's money well? Are you administering this program well um, on behalf of the American people really? Um, and so the way that I answer questions to an HPA, a human performance advisor, they're basically like the, 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 the person in charge of all the physical domain stuff at an individual wing. Like, how am I answering that to an HPA versus how am I answering that to a strength coach or an athletic trainer? Mm -hmm. Or how am I answering that to, um, like an officer? Like if, if the, if, um, Colonel Busk, who is our, um, he's like our, uh, division chief, like or division office commanding officer. Like if he if he's asking me those questions, I'm not going to answer them the same way because like if I tell him about issues with um, how people are utilizing equipment, like he doesn't care. Like he cares, but he doesn't really care. Like he wants sure. to know about the things that he can use to help us or that he can use to drive the mission forward. The same way that like if I'm having an issue with the way something's being calculated at SOCOM and I try to have that conversation with the strength coach, they're like, Lyle, how does that help me do my job? Because it doesn't. Um, right. So it's, it, it, it's kind of taking and seeing the big picture, but then figuring out like what is the, what is the context of the conversation that we want to have here? So anyway, I feel like I've talked a lot. No, no, it, it all makes sense. Um, I just wanted to kind of bring it back to, you know, more specifically, AT value has been something that's come up a lot. That's been a huge push yeah. by the NATA, you know, data collection. And I, I'm not arguing against it. I think, again, if you aren't collecting it, then it's hard to really even start an argument at all or, yep. you know, put together a proposal or, whatever it may you, be. So yes, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Everything it, that we need in terms of improvements in personnel, improvements in equipment, improvements in um, processes, all of that has to boil back to where, uh, where are we and how does that relate to how everybody else is doing or how does that relate to best practices? And you can't have those conversations and be taken seriously if you don't have something to back that up on, right? Right, and I'm, so that kind of brings me to a two-part question of um, something I feel strongly about, but we'll hold that till we get to I, the second part of the question. But yeah, I'm, we might end up having the same strong feelings because I they're like we're we're nibbling around some stuff here that I think once we get <laughs> into it, it's it's like you, um, I'm let me kick my soapbox out real quick. No, that. I'm excited to talk about this because I hear this from ATs all the time, and and I think that there are some big misconceptions. What data, first of all, you know, just in your experience of what you've seen, you know, in multiple settings and kind of now, would you say, you know, for somebody in the more traditional setting, secondary, yeah. university, what do you think would be the most impactful data to go after, you know, just there's a lot of things you could collect, but it, what have you seen just in you being more involved um, with a lot of data that you think would be a good place to start? Well, that's kind of part one. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that where you can make the biggest 
um, the biggest push and and represent yourself the most is it's it all starts with standardized documentation and just being able to on an encounter level track and and account for who you're seeing and what you're doing for them. So um, we have this healthcare system that's insurance based where everything is based off of doing things with codes like CPT codes. Yep. And I'm not saying this like the CPT codes and the diagnosis codes that come from ICD-10 are like the perfect and end all, but to start with just being able to track and measure how many people am I seeing? What am I doing with them? And then ultimately over time, longitudinally, like what's their, what are their, what are their outcomes? So like, if you're asking me the things that people need the most or like what would move the needle the most, it's a like standardized documentation that is accurate and, and, and meets the needs of the organization you're reporting to and patient reported outcome measures so that you can move the needle or show how you're moving the needle on getting somebody better. And it doesn't have to be rocket surgery. It can be, um, what's the name of it? Like just the score of like, you ask them at the beginning of the day, if 100% is normal and 0% is completely non-functional, what percentage are you at today with your knee? And if, and you know, if it's 50% is 50% and, and then compare it to the other side and then just tracking that over time to show that you can make an improvement, um, that's a big place to start. Um, and then tracking what you're doing because, and the nice thing about doing things via the whole CPT stuff is that um, we can always fall back on CMS reimbursement rates and we can always fall back on how RVUs are calculated from those. And being able to represent that, if you wanna do dollar amounts, do dollar amounts there. Where I think we start getting into trouble is whenever we start thinking that we can represent an ice bag as a treatment, or we can represent somebody doing electrical stim and just leaving them there as 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 a form of like value like i i will tell you that nobody who is providing any reimbursement in the in today's healthcare system they do not care whether you put ice on somebody or not um and and just put it on there and leave it they don't care how many ankles you tape um there it's obviously a it's obviously a cost and you need to be able to represent that as you're doing you know your accounting and your budgeting but I think we spend way too much time on trying to drill down on things that have very little value in today's world. And we spend a lot of time thinking about um, uh, like how we can how we can show like the stuff that we're doing um, that's kind of just what we've always been doing. And it's it's really, really frustrating to me because like we don't need we, we just It's almost like a self-congratulatory thing where people will be like, "Yeah, we handed out 15 and pat themselves on the back." And it's and it's like, "Well, you know, have you read the evidence on cryotherapy?" Because I'm not an anti-ice guy, but I do like it has a place, and right. the place is for pain mitigation, and that's kind of it. Unless you need to have somebody have something to do while you're doing something else, and then you can come back to them, sort of thing. And like, sure. you know, that's the purpose of passive modalities, in my opinion. Um, and I think we spend a, a lot more time putting at, putting value on things that are passive modalities. And we're also being found out by that because uh, ever since uh, Therabody and Hypervolt and all of those folks started um, manufacturing massage guns at scale, um, 
and gua sha tools are manufactured at scale. Um, and we're putting the power into consumers to be able to get those things for themselves. And people buy foam rollers and people buy these other devices that we used to keep in training rooms and hold on to and be gatekeepers for. And the mm -hmm. more we try to gatekeep that stuff and the less we actually focus on the values that we can provide as like actual healthcare professionals, the, the more, the more trouble we're going to have. And for so, sure. um, that's, I mean, if you're asking what specifically to measure, it's, it's the same thing that everybody else is measuring, right? Like you go to a PT clinic and you see what they're doing note-wise. You go to a doctor's office, you see what they're doing note-wise. They're not doing it. I mean, they're partially doing it so that they can contribute to the body of knowledge and the research if it's ever done and like that sort of thing. But they're also doing it so they can get insurance reimbursement. Yep. And you look at what they're doing for that. And that's probably what you need to care about. Like from a fiduciary standpoint, how much value am I providing is really based a lot on that. Um, and then thinking more in line of like, how am I serving um, the needs of my patients and the needs of their problems? You kind of got to put the epi hat on a little bit so you can think about things like injury incidents and um, prevalence. So like, what's my most common thing that happens and why is it most common? Um, and that's also done via an EMR, in my opinion. So I, I think that that's, that's, that's why you use an EMR. Um, but being able to have a conversation with a coach or a strength coach about, you know, like we all see trends, right? Like we know that because they started doing this particular drill at this particular time of the season, there's more hamstring strains right. or something like, you know, I'm inserting an injury there. Um, but if, if you, you know, think about, think about how it sounds if somebody comes up to you and says, well, yeah, you know, it just, it just seems like there might be something going on with this because there might maybe seems like there could be more hamstring injuries. Like that doesn't have any weight, but if you can say like, here are the number of practices that we've had. Here's the amount of time that we've spent on these other different drills. When we added this drill and that added this much time to practice within those spaces, we had 15 more injuries or 15 more hamstring injuries. And that changed the incidence of hamstring injuries from, you know, X percentage per thousand to Y percentage per thousand. Mm -hmm. And that's an increase. And it happened in the space of nothing else changed, but we added this like that becomes a lot more powerful to have those kinds of discussions. Um, and that's just thinking from like the injury mitigation, injury oh, for sure. I hate, um, but like you can think about it from those terms, thinking about it and figuring out what types of interventions provide you the most bang for your buck. That's where I think like the outcome measures goes. And that's also where like us tracking like return to play mechanisms and like how long somebody spends. And like, I think that anybody who uh, works in a team sport needs to make best friends with their strength coach in terms of helping with learning how to track and manage load. And that's load on the field or in on the playing surface, but it's also load in the weight room and load in conditioning. Yeah. Um, because having norms for that and being able to understand that this is what the most common um, kind of relative load for a, a receiver versus a, um, versus a running back 
versus an O-lineman versus a quarterback, like they're all going to have, because, and I'm using football as an example, because it's a really good example of like, you have a whole team, but those teams have specialty roles and those roles, like, like it or not, that receivers all run off the line and catch the ball. Defensive backs all try to keep them from from doing that. And they're practicing for the same game. And so we can, we can group them according to kind of what their function is, right? Same thing with in baseball, we can group outfielders together. We can group middle infielders together. We can group starting pitchers versus relief pitchers together because they have similar roles. They have similar demands, which means that they're going to be trained in a similar way. Right. And being able to have the norms for that means that whenever we do have somebody that has to come out from injury, we know kind of the level that they've gone to with their, with um, like the deconditioning that they get from not playing or not being involved. And then as we get them back to where they need to go, we have an idea of where we need to get them back to. So um, managing loads, a big deal. In my opinion, I think that honestly, like throw away all the manual therapy stuff, throw away so much of the correctives and the FMS and all of these things and focus on understanding load management and different ways that we can measure things in terms of load management. Sure. And we don't have to, it doesn't have to be with catapult. It doesn't have to be, you know, thousand dollar systems. Like it doesn't have to be the fanciest things like throw counts and pitch counts, how far someone's running, how many plays someone's in, like it's not rocket surgery, but measuring that and being able to have that to fall back on whenever we're reconditioning someone um, is a big, big deal. And I think that also gets into this idea that like, I don't know that I would ever expect like an AT working at a 5A school where it's just the two of them to like have so much essay on what those, um, uh, on what those like specific practice loads are. But I'll tell you what, if they came to a coach and asked them about that, that the, the, the coaches that are worth working with, and I know they're all not worth working with, <laughs> they would be thrilled to death for you to ask them that question. And then whenever you put this in the perspective of, I'm trying to help somebody get to the point where they are good with an injury and good with reconditioning and not trying to, um, not trying to bring them back too early and get them hurt, like that coaching professionals want to have these conversations. They don't want to have conversations about ice bags and ankle tape jobs. Right. And, and I, and I think that we hurt ourselves by sitting in the training room and not going out and, and, and like forming these relationships and understanding how we fit into the ecosystem of the, the entire like organization, whether that be at a high school or a college or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, and that, that gets into this whole other thing of like, you know, be proactive and like, I think we, sh we finish school and we show up to our jobs and this is not an athletic training thing. This is an everybody thing. This is a, this is being a young person and being a young professional and, and just like the way that we're conditioned and like the way that we're tested and all of that stuff. We show up to jobs and instead of asking the question of like, what can I do to help? We ask the question of, well, it's not really a question. We say, well, this is what I do. As an athletic trainer, I'm responsible for the five domains of practice. I'm responsible for prevention and rehabilitation and therapeutic exercise and prevention and uh, other admin stuff, I guess. And instead of asking the question of like, well, 
here are issues. People are getting hurt. Mm-hmm. They seem to be getting hurt towards the end of the season. And then what what can we do or what can you do to help us with that? And then using all of this great knowledge that you got to pass the VOC to apply it rather than just tell people what you do. And whenever they say, well, I don't understand that. And you say, okay, well, I'll be in the training room. Um, it's it, it, it should be a lot more interactive than that, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah, that was, uh, you kind of hinted at it a little bit. And I just wanted to kind of summarize on that, you know, just the story and everything else, the context, like you had mentioned earlier, that goes along with the data and who you're talking to, you know, and why that's important. If you're wanting to implement more of these things, you know, coming with some of the data, but then also having that story behind it of why this actually makes sense and not just, hey, here's a bunch of data. Here's exactly what we did. Said even make that argument on some of those other things is just we know secondary school ATs are busy in in their athletic training facility. Like that's not yeah. I don't think that's surprising to a lot of people. And if it were yeah. just the numbers that showed patient interactions, things like that, there would have been a shift. Either A, you're getting paid more, or B, you're getting help, or whatever it is. You know, yeah, yeah. From my own experience as well, when we were you know keeping track of some of that simple stuff at uh, the university I worked at. But that didn't really move the needle. <laughs> like, like yeah. it just, it just wasn't, it, that's great. Like everybody's got those numbers. Everybody is high. And so figuring yeah. out the story to tell behind it and pulling those things and really like, that's where you can start pulling people more in and then having yeah. it so important. And, and I, I really don't want to give off the impression that I'm not sensitive to that. And I'm not sensitive to the idea that like, ultimately we work for ADs and a lot of those ADs are old coaches who were raised a certain way. And um, it's not anybody's fault that whenever, you know, coach Bill or whoever, who has, you know, he graduated from college in the mid eighties and whenever he was in school and doing whatever sports he was doing and coming out and as a young coach, the athletic trainer was someone who um, their educational requirement was that they got a PE degree and then they took like an A&P class and learned how to tape an ankle and did an internship. And I know I'm sounding really, really harsh when I say that, but you look at the the like you look at the stuff that was that people were talking about and what was important in in like uh, the infancy of our profession, and you look at how we are like our standards that we hold ourselves to in terms of our education and in terms of our continuing education now. At that point, we were um, we were very much technicians, and at this point, we are medical professionals, and you have to fight that uh, that previous kind of perception of us from back in the day um a lot but i i i also would say that just you know my removed perspective is that the only way and i and i've i've seen this just within the special operations community and i've seen this within professional sports as well and i think you're starting to see it in college sports is that the more people that we positively impact 
who then grow up to become the ones who are making those decisions, who remember how great of an experience they had with their athletic trainer and really what it took to take care of them and have the perspective of we really need to take care of those people because they are taking care of us. That needle has moved and will continue to move in a positive direction. I don't know what to say to someone who's dealing with um, the others or like, you know, the, that kind of old school mentality, other than that you are not a tree and you don't have to stay in any one place if you don't want to, yeah. and that the market is going to correct itself. Um, I don't know how quick it's going to take. And I think that um, our friends in college athletics um, who are really, really hurting right now, because you can't beg, borrow, or steal somebody into uh, a lower level job. And I say lower level, I shouldn't say that. I say an entry level job at a college. Yep. Like whenever the, whenever it's being said that like, and just think about it, like as a new grad coming out of a master's program today, if I'm looking at entry level jobs and there's one being offered at insert big, big name, power five school, no, not even power five, group of five, division two, whatever, and those jobs are being offered and you're making 45 grand to, which is uh, the profession average, which how sad is that? Um, but you're making 45 grand to work 80 hours a week. And in today's collegiate setting where there is no off season or today's collegiate setting where um, most schools, if you're not working football or basketball, these entry-level jobs, they're responsible for at least two sports. And like, you're going to a place where like, from a safety standpoint, are we really providing enough bodies to like, make sure nobody's dying? Um, depends on what metric you're using, like that sort of thing. Like, and the expectation is you're going to work 80 hours a week. You're going to make 45 grand a year. And you're going to be solely responsible for two teams and they're going to call you at 3 a.m. And like, if you don't like it, then, you know, maybe you weren't cut out for this profession. Um, and you have that or you have, you can go work at Amazon in an entry level position and work 40 hours a week and make 70 grand a year. Like, where do you think they're going to go? Right. And as the job, as the applicant pool is shrinking, which to be clear is not a bad thing, as the applicant pool shrinks because of this master's stuff, and as more and more uh, emerging settings are realizing the value of an AT and they're putting a good dollar amount on that value because they know that our presence is better than our absence in terms of moving the needle in the occupational setting, in the military, in the performing arts settings. As that continues to happen, college athletics and really traditional athletics in general, college um, and high school, pro, pro sports is a little different, but that's because of the prestige sure. thing. But those two specifically, like their, their labor pools being just just drained and it's being drained because they have better options. And so at some point the market will correct itself. At some point people are going to be like, Hey, I wonder if maybe we paid these guys more and we restructured things to make it to where they wanted to show up if they'd come that, that will happen, but it's just taken a lot longer and um, having, so whenever I was uh, waiting to get this job, I, I interviewed at a division one school in my home state and, um, and, 
they said they really liked me. We had a good discussion. I've, I know a lot of people there because I'm from there, you know, whatever. Um, on paper, the position description, the max that I could make as a football athletic trainer at this power five, let's one power five at this group of five school working football was 48 grand. And I told them I have 10 years experience. Absolutely not. Um, I said, I won't even entertain a conversation um, unless I'm making at least 65. And the response was, well, that's what our, that's what the head football person makes. And I said, okay, well, you need to pay them more. And then if you want to talk to me, we can talk about it if it's at least 65. And um, the response I got was the next day, I got a text that said, they're wanting to know if you can do it for 55. And I said, no, I'm sorry. And then that was the end of that. Sure. And that's just my experience in, in this job market. Um, and I jumped in and took interviews and got job offers in the, in the physician's practice setting. And the percentage of places that paid above 60 um, was pretty high. The percentage of places that paid 70 or above was not as high, but th they still existed. And that's in the physician's practice setting. And then it's also going to depend on where you're at too, right? Sure. Like, you know, we know that a secondary school in Texas, like you can go down there and be an entry level athletic trainer and make 60 grand first thing versus like whenever I was in, like whenever I was in New York, those jobs, they, they, you, you'd be lucky to get them to pay you, to, to pay you 60. And that's living in New York. Right. Um, so it's, it's, um, I don't know what to do about that other than just continue to pound the rock. And eventually the people who make those types of decisions, like they're either going to be pressured by litigation and the lack of, of people and, and, and the needle's going to get moved where they're going to increase salaries and they're going to like change the way that they, um, the way that they kind of expect people to do their jobs. Um, or, uh, you know, they're going to kill somebody and that's like, some of the biggest drivers of change in our profession and particularly in college athletics have come from litigation. So it could be that too. Um, and enough. nobody wants that, but that's probably, I mean, that, I mean, look at, look at Maryland, look at rice with the sickle cell guy. Like you can go back and look at all that stuff. I mean, it's the same reason why um, in, um, in military training environments, everybody's required to have cold tubs everywhere all the time because they were killing kids uh, with, with, um, exercise into or you know the the exertional heat stuff yep um so like sometimes that's what drives change anyway that's like way far away from what you were asking about but it's a it's a worthy discussion right absolutely we may have to save that one for another episode uh just kind of in the interest of time i think we'll jump into these at chat questions um okay you, you may have actually kind of just answered this one so i'll see if you have anything else to expand upon it is where do you see the athletic training profession going in the next five to 10 years? Um, so, and if you want to say, I just refer to what I just said, I, I, I well, can get you, know, you there. You can, you can refer to that, but I think I, I just don't know because I think there are fundamental changes that need to be made in terms of how we advocate for ourselves. And I think that the people who are being put in charge of advocating for us are spending a lot of time talking about things that they don't need to be talking about, like name changes and sh stuff like that. Um, and so I don't know. Um, let me just give you my best perspective on this, and it's not a good one, is that 
I will never work as an athletic trainer ever again. And all of my friends who I respect the most have also gotten out and will never work as athletic trainers. That's fair. Um, and so I, I mean, uh, that sounds real doom and gloom and I, I want people to succeed, but it's like the overall, like the nature of the market and the nature of college athletics and like the places where we're supposed to be like the experts and like really, you know, get our money, people get their money's worth out of us. Those places are being shuttered and they're like, they can't buy, beg, borrow or steal staff. And they're all going to these other professions or these other areas of the profession, um, or they're just straight up leaving. And I think that's, I mean, unless we figure out a way to address that and address the fact that among public universities, 3% of their budgets are being spent on athlete wellness, like unless we can get into that, I don't have good feelings. Um, which, oof, you know, I'm glad I have a bulletproof vest. I can't wait to hear about how I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> what advice did you go back and give yourself as a young athletic trainer? And if you could, you know, say when that would be um, in your career? Yeah. Um, I would say, and this goes back to like, probably one of my first jobs. So like pretty young, I would say that um, you shouldn't look for um, you shouldn't look for what makes the people around you happy to make you happy. You need to go after what makes you happy. I think I spent a, a lot of my time as a young person trying to get to a job that was that I saw other people getting joy from and I saw other people really getting a lot out of that wasn't a job that I liked to do. Sure. And, um, and I spent my time really trying to emulate people who I really, really admired, um, instead of like asking myself, like, what is going to help me be able to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, you did a good job. Um, so we, we put a lot of, we put a lot of our focus externally and we put a lot of focus on like trying to sort of do the things that we saw people do whenever we were in school or whenever we were growing up. Like I want to be the head athletic trainer at whatever D1 school, or I want to be the director of sports medicine for whatever professional team. And um, that's fine if, you know, the stars align to get you there. But at the end of the day, you have to go home and you, you have to like, everybody either dies or quits or gets fired from a job. Nothing lasts forever in the professional realm. So you have to be able to, to, to take care of yourself outside of that. So make your decisions to do that. Makes sense. What has been the most influential resource you found in your career? A resource, um, I mean, the internet, right? Uh, I, I, I don't really know the scale of this question. Um, I think that the biggest thing that's helped me is learning how to um, like read and interpret research sure. and understand what was um, like, what were they, what were they trying to answer? How were they trying to answer it? Did they even answer it? Right. And like being able to take things and put them in the scale of like, it's kind of like a, what have you done for me lately sort of thing. Yep. Um, because if you don't know how to drive the questions that you're asking, you can really get lost and find a lot of disparate stuff and you can end up more confused than how you started. So 
So for me, being able to understand how to read research and how to apply the results of the research that I read has been a big deal. And that's not just in like the athletic training world. That's in just like my entire scope of like, oh, I can you imagine. know, doing the things that I get to do. Yep, that is one I have definitely learned as well um, as I've gotten further into my career. Is an AT in your role slash non-AT currently? How do you take care of yourself? Um, so like self-care is a big deal to me. And I would say that whatever kind of routine you put together, think of it as like a meal with separate separate ingredients. And so even if you were missing one ingredient, it doesn't ruin the meal, but you can taste the difference between it. So like, how do I take care of myself? I really, really pay attention to my sleep. I pay attention to my nutrition. So what am I eating? When am I eating it? Um, something that I recently discovered for myself has been, and it's funny, like, you know, the whole thing about people, you know, we're healthcare professionals, but we don't take care of our own health. Like, I didn't have a good understanding of how exercise affects my mental health until like within the last year. And so sure. for me, having some form of structured, regimented exercise that I practice in some way, whether it be strength training or some form of conditioning or something, and it's something that I can go to that's outside of my like work in life and that it's something that I do on a continuous enough basis that I can track progress in some way, like that is a big deal. So that's like, that's a really big part of how I take care of myself. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to tell anybody anything that they shouldn't already have a good understanding of, at least like on a fundamental level, like be around people you like being around, do things you like to do, sleep, eat, and, um, and like, don't stress about stuff. And that's how you take care of yourself. And I wish that it I wish, I wish it were that easy to do as it is for me to have just said that, but that's, right. I mean, that's what you do, you know? Yep. Yep. I understand that. Well, I'm going to ask you to pick just one thing on this one. If you could change or eliminate one thing, could be modality, common practice mindset within the profession of athletic training, what would it be? I think it would be this idea that, because I, I see this a lot with um, not just young professionals, but like a lot of other people too. I think this mindset of like, I've passed the BOC, therefore I've made it professionally and, and not. I've been kind there. Of, I, I learned that lesson quickly. Well, and just not being, um, not being, uh, continuing to be curious and continuing to try to make things better and continuing to try to learn and to position yourself around people who bring the most out of you. Like if you finish school and you get your job and you're just like, yep, I got my BOC and I do my, I do my continuing ed and I still do the same things that they taught me how to do whenever I went to da -da -da school. And I, I do a really good job at that. And like, if you ever are ever in a place where you feel like you don't have anything else to learn, you probably don't need to be in, in, in that profession, regardless of what that is. Um, and if, and that, and maybe that's just like a me thing, but I, I just, um, I, I think that having a fixed mindset about things, it really sets you up for long-term, like it, 
it it sets you up for whenever bad things happen you don't know what to do and it and it can create like a lot of lot of hardship in your life if you are if you are setting a like a growth mindset with things and you're always trying to get better and you also have the self-awareness to know that like it's like the I'm not okay you're not okay but it's okay sort of thing like if you have the self-awareness to know that you have a ways to go but you're you're doing what you can to get there like I it's just it it creates so much self-efficacy and it kind of takes away a, a lot of like if you put so much of yourself into just like the place that you are right now and like your one job or your one profession and things that like really aren't in your control in a lot of ways um and then that is taken away from you because you don't have any control over it. Um, speaking as someone who was fired from a job one time where I put a lot, a, I mean, just so much of myself into being the best that I could in that profession or in that position. And then it was one of those things where a series of events and stuff that I couldn't really control. And suddenly I found myself where it's like, well, you're being terminated and, you know, sorry about it. Um, and it sucks. But I also feel like it is something that has put me in the best position possible because I don't put my self-worth into what I do. I put uh -huh. my self-worth into the person that I am. And that, I mean, that's, that it, it, it's a big deal. So anyway, if I could eliminate one thing, it would be, uh, well, the, the one thing would probably be um, what don't, think that what got you here is what's going to keep you here I like that and it's not and it's definitely not going to get you there right you know what no, i mean i like that a lot <laughs> i like that a lot uh last question we'll, we'll let you go with this one is what does being an athletic trainer or having been an athletic trainer as you mentioned mean to you um for me it means it it's always been i have this really cool and uh, like athletic trainers in general are to me like you know we talk about being the swiss army knives of healthcare of um or of the like athletic realm uh -huh. to me what i've always loved about being an athletic trainer is that i got to live in so many different spheres or in so many different like parts of these industries like i can have a conversation with a um with a performance coach, I can have a conversation with a, a sports fan. I can have a conversation with an athlete. I can have a conversation with um, the people in the front office. And to be able to have the like the essay and the expertise to contribute to so many different conversations in a meaningful way, that's what drew me to the profession. Um, and and that's to me like that that's like to be able to have this whole like medical expertise thing going on, but also like, I still, like, I understand what sport I'm working with in a way that most other fans don't, sure. but I also understand the development side of it, but I also understand the fiduciary side of it, but also like, I love sports, like being able to, to have, to be well represented in so many different ways. And in so many conversations to me is like the coolest part. Um, and I still would consider myself somebody who gets to do that just in a little different way um, because I'm not practicing. I'm not putting hands on people, but I'm, I am empowering the people who do put hands on people to do their jobs the best sure. that they can. And, and my favorite thing about what I get to do now is that I get to take my perspective and represent the people who are 
just like killing themselves trying to do the best job possible, I get to represent that value to um, really important people. And, and, I, I, and so. I feel very grateful that I get to, that I get to, to um, close the loop like that. It's just, to me, it's just like the coolest thing. No, that's a really cool way to look at it and really impactful. Uh, in closing, if people wanted to connect with you, follow you, if they got questions about uh, data science, data analytics, I know I've messaged you a few times and probably will continue. And, and um, I owe you some resources. I know. I'm sorry. It's uh, like, it's not like I've got time to do them right now anyway, so I'm not stressed about yeah, it. Yeah, so. we're all we're all in this boat. Like and like I asked my uh, like one of my government counterparts the other day who's been in this position a lot longer than me. I'm like, is there like you know I'm from a background where there's like seasons um you know there's it gets high and then it goes low and like we're super busy but then like we're not so busy like is there a season to this and he just looks at me and he's like no Lyle it's busy and then it's really busy and that's those are the two speeds so I get it like it's that's part of it yeah but if people want to connect with you where would be the best place for them to do that you can message me on twitter um the it's the uh, data-driven at um really that's probably the best way perfect um and because that's you know it's on my phone and i check it instagram i kind of am a little more close hold on that stuff and then facebook again i'm pretty close hold on that stuff so um if they want they can email me too my my email is my name lyle danley atc at gmail.com perfect happy to happy to happy to field questions there too um but yeah that's probably the two easiest ways awesome well, I'm glad we finally got to do this connect in yeah. somewhat person. Um, and I have a feeling we'll do a follow-up at some point on a variety of topics again, but it'll be good. That's I I love to talk. So if you if you want to talk, we can continue doing that. Sounds sure. good to me. Well, I appreciate you being on uh, and we'll look forward to the next time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Athletic Training Chat with Lyle Danley. I hope you got some ideas for data and how to break it down and the importance of what you're doing and telling with that data and really how that can impact um, beyond just showing the numbers. Uh, Obviously, we think that's important and something that really should pay attention to. If you have any interest in getting into journaling, check out the Athletic Training Daily Journal available on Amazon. It's 366 days of prompts, cues, questions, quotes, uh, focus around many different aspects that are directly related to the athletic training profession to help you grow as a professional and maybe as a person as well. If you want to give it a try and see what it's all about, head over to clinicallypress.org backslash shop and you can find the 14-day downloadable trial for free uh, just to see what it's all about and if that's something that you would ultimately be interested in. As always, we want to thank Mueller Sports Medicine for helping power this podcast check them out for all your sports medicine needs especially as everybody is getting into the thick of everything this year Uh, they'll be happy to help you out and if you've got ideas let them know as well until next time thank you for listening